And now the Holy Spirit would enjoy us enjoying the Word of God together as part of our worship today. And so if I could, let me ask you to take that uh, bulletin that you received when you came in, pull the note page out of there if you wouldn't mind, because that'll be helpful for us along the way. And if you'll take your Bible and join me in the book of 1 Peter this morning, chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you need a Bible today, um, we've got some in the back. And just raise your hand. I'll be glad to share a copy of God's Word with you. Many years ago in Boston, there was a pastor by the name of A.J. Gordon. One day he met a little boy out in front of the church, and the boy was carrying a rusty birdcage in his hand, and, and several little birds were fluttering around on the bottom of the cage as if they knew that their end was near. Pastor Gordon said, son, where did you get those birds? And he said, well, I I trapped them out in the field. Well, what are you going to do with them? The little boy said, I'm going to take them home and I'm going to play with them. And then what are you going to do when you're done playing with them? The little boy said, well, I I, I guess I'll feed them to the old cat that lives around our house. (laughs) Well, Pastor Gordon asked the little boy how much he would take for the birds in the cage Mr., you don't want these birds. They, they're just old field sparrows, and, and they can't sing. I'll give you $5 for the birds in the cage. The little boy didn't hesitate for one moment. He said, okay, but you're making a bad deal. Well, their business transaction done. The little boy went whistling down the street, $5 richer, and obviously feeling pretty good about how this had gone for him. And then Pastor Gordon, he took the cage out behind the church, set it on the ground, opened the door, and out flew in a rush these sparrows chirping wildly as they went. On Sunday morning, he took that empty, rusty old birdcage to church with him, and he set it right next to the pulpit. It was going to be the opening illustration for his message that day on the subject of redemption. One definition of redemption says that it is the payment of a price in order to secure the freedom of another. After telling the story behind the cage, Pastor Gordon said, that little boy told me that those birds couldn't sing. But when I opened the cage door, I am almost certain I heard them singing, redeemed, redeemed, (laughs) redeemed. First Peter, where your Bible is now open, verses 18 and 19, read like this. Knowing, knowing that you were ransomed, you were redeemed, you were bought back from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, or spot. Church family, this is where we were hanging out together last Sunday, if you were with us, part of our ongoing study of this amazing New Testament book of First Peter, to persecuted Christians in the first century who had been beaten up and bloodied and are made to suffer simply because they love Jesus and are living for him. Peter writes this letter to equip them and to encourage them not to give up on Jesus. While you might be spiritual exiles in this world, Peter could have said, you are the prized possession of God. 
the God of the universe. You are his prized possession in that world that is to come. He paid the highest price ever paid for anything when he bought you with the life of his own son, Jesus. To spiritual exiles living in any place, any time, the Holy Spirit says through this passage, never forget this, Christian. Never forget. It will help you to weather the hard times. You are the blood-bought prize of the living God through faith in Jesus. And we do say amen and amen to that. That glorious truth brings us now to the next section of 1 Peter that we're sharing together in our verse-by-verse explore, which means, as you see there on your note page, we're looking today at verses 22 to 25 of chapter 1. In fact, we're going to actually wrap up chapter 1 today. Only four chapters to go after this. So let me read from my Bible, which is an ESV uh, version. Beginning of verse 22, I'll ask you to follow along in your Bibles as well. And Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's stop right there. Well, you don't need to be a Bible scholar to know that the Holy Spirit has a few things to say to us here today about the power of the word of God to transform a person's life. Whether they're a first century persecuted Christian or they're a 21st century Christian living today as you and I are. Three times in this short section he mentions the word So that's where we're going to want to land for the bulk of our time together this morning. But before we do that, church family, Peter issues yet another call to action as we have seen him do in recent weeks. You might recall if you've been with us that after sharing with us how awesomely great our salvation is in Christ in verses 1 through 12, he then issues three direct commands in verses 13 to 17. Hope fully, be holy, and honor always. Do you remember this from prior weeks? Everybody needs to say yes if you were here those weeks. Yes. You say yes. I remember, Pastor Tim. Great. Hope fully, Peter said, in the promised and soon return of Jesus. Always live with that expectant thought that Jesus could come back even today and you would see him. So, so, so hopefully, and then strive to be holy because God is a holy God. Flee sin and obey what God says and then make honoring always your heavenly father in everything you do, your goal, because he is worthy of that. He is worthy of nothing less than our honor of him all of the time. Hopefully, be holy and honor always. And now to those three Peter adds a fourth strong call to action in verse 22 when he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. In other words, having had your spiritual life, the real you, 
the, your, your heart, your soul washed clean from the condemning, corrupting power of sin through faith in the blood of Jesus. That's the verse 18 and 19 stuff we just talked about. As a result of that, love one another how, church? Earnestly from a pure heart. So hopefully, be holy, honor always, and now Peter says, love deeply. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, that word earnestly, it's a little Greek word that means to to push the boundaries or to stretch to the limits of what you thought you could do. And so as you see it there on your note page, Peter, in effect, says, love others like you mean it. Love others like you mean it. And it makes perfect sense for Peter to say this to these persecuted believers because all they've got is each other. I mean, their culture has turned on them. It has rejected them. It has abandoned them because they love Jesus. And so really all they have is one another. Their long-term survival in the midst of this persecution depends on them doing this call very well, loving each other like they really mean it. And brothers and sisters, in saying this, Peter isn't doing anything more than repeating what Jesus had told him on the night before Jesus went to the cross. Perhaps you remember this moment, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. We'll put them up on the screen for us. Jesus says, just hours away from the cross, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you, what? That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Jesus' love was stretched to the ultimate limits. The infinite boundaries of love were pressed as his arms were stretched out wide and nailed to the cross. And Jesus says, you love each other like I have loved you. Love like you mean it, because that's how I love. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, church family, two mornings ago, if you were with us on that day, we spent our entire morning unpacking these two verses out of John 13. And we did that as part of our turning leaf celebration focus. But I also knew that we would be here in verse 22 in a very short time. And so we have essentially already unpacked Peter's fourth call to action, which is great because that's going to allow us to focus on some other things today. But as we feasted on those two verses two weeks ago, we did come to the place of asking, okay, what does loving like Jesus loves really look like? What does loving like you mean it, what does that look like? And what we discovered is that it looks an awful lot like the more than 40 one another commands that we find on the pages of our, of our Bibles. If you look on your note page, I have compressed quite literally these 40 plus one another commands into that little red section on your note page. We put them up on the screen for you as well. 
And if you were to read through these again, this is what Jesus is talking about in John 13. This is what loving like you mean it looks like. But let's take that another step. On an even more practical level, loving like you mean it looks an awful awful lot like it does for one of the men in our church who takes his unbelieving neighbor's trash to the dump every week. He's an elderly man, doesn't know Jesus, doesn't go to church, but a guy in our church takes his trash to the dump every week because he loves him and is hoping to build a bridge over which the gospel might be able to travel. That's what loving like you mean it might look like. Loving like you mean it looks like like when the women in our church commit to, to drive another lady in our church to dialysis three days a week, every week. That's what loving like you mean it looks like. It looks like staying after everyone else has left the Turning Leaf celebration two Sunday mornings ago, having had a great time, and they stay behind and they clean up the mess that we all made. Loving like you mean it looks like that on a very practical level. Loving like you mean it looks like it did a couple of mornings ago as well when I was looking after second service and I saw four or five of our ladies gathered around another lady in our church and they were just praying with her and crying with her as she was weeping over her family. That's what loving like you mean it looks like. It looks like one of the guys in our church who has pledged to be there for an alcoholic friend who has just come out of rehab and is battling intense intense temptation. And this guy is just saying, I'm here for you. You've got my number. Call me. I'm there. It looks like it did for a couple in our church family who sat in the ER all night with an unchurched neighbor's wife because her husband fell and broke his hip and she didn't have anybody else. And so they sat with her in the ER all night long couple in our church family that that's what loving like you mean it looks like having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love love one another earnestly from a pure heart love others like you mean it and why do we do that church why do we love like that Well, we love like that because that's how Jesus loves. And Peter says in verse 23, because you've been reborn. You love like that because you've been born again. Verse 23, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. In other words, the Holy Spirit through Peter not only tells us what we are to do, but why we are to do it. Love deeply because our lives were literally transformed when we placed our faith and our trust in the life-giving work and person of Jesus. We've been reborn, therefore we love deeply. You follow the thought? Peter's thinking here in this moment. Now, if you have been with us from the beginning of this Exiles series, you know this isn't the first time that Peter has talked with us about being born again. If you go back up to verse 3 of chapter 1, here's what Peter wrote to us several weeks ago when we were in this section. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be what, church? Born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We say amen and amen. Peter says, oh, dear brothers and sisters in Jesus, suffering at the hands of a culture that doesn't share your faith, remember you have been born again to a living hope. And when you're suffering like these Christians were suffering, you need to have hope. So remember, you've been born again to a living hope. God has caused that to happen in your life. And so in the same way that Peter got love one another from Jesus on the night before the cross, he also got this expression from Jesus, born again. Do you remember when that moment happened? John chapter 3, Jesus has a secret meeting with a Jewish religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. Do you remember this moment, church? Yeah? Yeah, Nicodemus genuinely wanted to understand who Jesus was and what his message was all about. And so Jesus gladly receives Nicodemus at night. And he says to him in their conversation at one point, John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, no one will ever see God unless they are reborn. And Nicodemus, understandably confused, says, what? 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 We're only born once, Jesus. Are you telling me that I must enter my mom's womb again and be reborn a second time? Is that what you're talking about? And we all laugh because it's kind of a ridiculous question, isn't it? And Jesus wasn't talking about a physical rebirth at all. He was talking about a spiritual birth, wasn't he? That's what he was talking about. But the Bible describes our natural spiritual condition as one in which we are dead. The Bible says every human being is born dead spiritually. Now, we may not like the sound of that, but that's the truth. We read that in many places, but in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, here's what we read. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. Dead in transgressions. Dead in sin. It is by grace you have been saved. Amen is right. Church family, when we were in this passage uh, several weeks ago and we were learning about um, spiritual rebirth, I asked you, what does dead mean? So I'll ask you again. What does it mean to be dead? Dead, right? Just That's what it means. It means to, to be dead. It means to be without life. It means to be lifeless. It means to be unresponsive. Not just unwilling, but unable to respond to God or to anything spiritual. You are spiritually dead, this passage tells us. Now, most of you know, if you're a part of our church family, that recently I had what turned out, thankfully, to be a a fairly minor heart issue. And so I had an unexpected hospital stay for a few days. And the whole time that I was in the hospital, I was hooked up to a heart monitor that registered every single thing that my heart did. And so every beat, every flutter, the line on this monitor would go... Beep, 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 and it just, it never stopped. It just kept doing it. Thankfully, it never stopped. <laughs> but, but that line doing that, beep, 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 that meant that I was what? 
I was alive. That's right. Now, if that line went flat, that would not have been a good thing for me, right? And in fact, what do we call that? When that line goes flat, we call it being flatlined. And that means you are dead. That's exactly right. Well, another name for that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, hey, we were born spiritually flatlined. Spiritually flatlined. No life spiritually. We were born spiritually. We are, we are spiritually dead. And that is what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. It's what Peter is reminding all spiritual exiles of here in this moment in verse 23. Now, by the way, Peter was probably there on that night in John 3, and he heard everything that Jesus told Nicodemus. The Holy Spirit brings that moment back to Peter's mind as he says, love each other like you mean it since you have been born again of an imperishable seed. Now that last little expression, imperishable seed, that might be an odd expression for us, not one that we're used to, but it's just Peter's way of saying that our spiritual birth is going to last. It's born of an imperishable seed. Every living thing, whether it's plant or animal or human, is born physically of a perishable seed. Would you agree with that? Yeah, we were, we were all born with a perish, from a perishable seed. The seed germinates. It conceives, it's born, it grows, but everything born of a perishable seed eventually does what? Well, it eventually perishes. It eventually dies. Not so with the spiritual rebirth that you and I have experienced through faith in Jesus. An imperishable seed called the gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done for us, that, that, that spiritual seed came to life in our hearts as God brought it to life. And, and so it was an eternal God who germinated that seed, the gospel, and the redeeming work of the Holy Spirit in us through what Jesus has done on the cross. All of that results in a life that never ends. It is an imperishable life because it is born from an imperishable seed called the gospel. Do you understand? Do you follow that? It's a beautiful word picture. So Christian, think about your own spiritual story. Why are you a sold-out follower of Jesus today? Why is that true for you, if that's true, if you know Jesus today? Why are you a sold-out follower of Jesus Christ? Well, without even asking or talking to you about that, I know that something happened within you, deep inside of you, where the real you lives. Something that wasn't sourced in you changed the whole trajectory of your life. Peter says the only explanation is that God sowed the imperishable seed of his gospel in your heart and through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he made it grow and you have eternal life and you will never not have eternal life. You've been born again. Exiles in any age must never forget this. It can be a real difference maker in hard times. Man, I have been born again of an imperishable seed. I have eternal life. Now then, if you flip your note page over, we love like we mean it, 
because we've been reborn and Jesus' life has become our life. And then Peter says, all of this has come to us. All of this truth has come to us through the living and abiding word of God. In other words, the only reason that we know about this imperishable life is that it, and that it can really be ours is because God has told us in his book. And we say amen. Thank you, Lord, for your book. Well, verse 22 once again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since or because you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then doing what many New Testament writers often did, Peter reaches back into the Old Testament and he grabs a passage out of Isaiah. And he uses that passage to give us a word picture about the seed and how fleeting the life of a physical seed is. Verse 24 For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. The grass quickly dries up because it comes from a perishable seed. The flower in the field soon begins to droop, and and then the, the, the blossom shrivels up and falls to the ground. Why? Because it comes from a perishable seed. Unlike the imperishable seed that comes from God, verse 25 but the word of the Lord does what? It remains forever. And this word is the good news, the gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done, appropriate into my life by grace through faith, that was preached to you. And brothers and sisters, here's where Peter gives us a great opportunity for just a couple of moments to reflect upon and to really rejoice in the wonderful gift that God has given to us in his word, the Holy Scriptures, our Bibles. Because three times he speaks about this, the living and abiding word of God, the word of the Lord, and this word. We're holding in our hands right now a book, either in printed form or or in electronic form, that is like no other book in existence. Do you believe that today, Christian? Absolutely, you believe that. There's never going to be another book like this book. Would you say that? Yeah. Peter calls it the living and abiding. Maybe your version uses the word enduring word of God. It's living and it's abiding because its author has lived eternally from ages past and forever. Right? That makes it a living and abiding word because its author is living and enduring eternally. It's the living word because it alone holds the truth about how dead sinners such as ourselves can be made alive. It holds life on its very pages because it reveals Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life, right? Yeah, it's enduring because the message never becomes outdated. It never becomes obsolete. Sinners will always need a savior, right? So it's the living and abiding word that we will always need. The message is timeless, living and abiding. And Peter is careful to state and then restate, just in case we missed it the first time, that the word is God-authored. It is he who is the word. It's the word of the Lord. It's the word of God. And by declaring that, Peter is saying that this is a word that will always be enough for us. Two truths. The word is God-authored. 
and it will always be enough for us. Do you believe that? Yeah. A contemporary of Peter's, the Apostle Paul, makes the same two declarations in what is probably the best known and surely one of the most defining statements that we have in Scripture about our Bibles. And I'm thinking of 2 Timothy 2, or 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. In fact, I wonder if you could read with me those verses right off the screen, and we would just do that as a church family. Read these two verses aloud together. Can we do that? Let's do it. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Amen and amen. Now, the key phrase is the first one. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Everything depends on that statement. The word all means both the Old and the New Testament, 66 smaller books that have been supernaturally brought together by God's Spirit to form the one book we call our Bible. But what is it about these writings that make them, and only them, Scripture? What is it about them? Well, verse 16 says, This book was breathed out by God himself, breathed out. Now, God doesn't have lungs, he's spirit, so we know this is language that is helping us to understand truths that, that we might not grasp otherwise. So when we speak, what do we do? We breathe out, don't we? We, we breathe out. In fact, if we try to speak while we're breathing in, not good things happen, Right? We sound like a frog, and we start to hyperventilate, and people can't understand what we're saying. We breathe out when we want to speak. All Scripture is God, figuratively speaking, breathing out. It's His voice, His thoughts, His will, His heart. He speaks. We call it inspiration, the inspiration of Scripture. So so Scripture is God talking to us. And that makes the Bible's source God himself. God breathed out his words supernaturally, supernaturally preserved them in a book that's like no other book in the world. Someone might say, but, but what if God spoke the words out? Yes, but they're spoken out and then, and then human writers are getting involved because we know that's the case. Even though God is perfect, the human writers that that God used, they're not perfect. How can what is written in Scripture be perfect if, if humans are involved? Well, that's a great question, and God anticipated that we would ask that question. So, use, so using Peter, what do we read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21? No prophecy was ever produced by what? The will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The God who is able to reveal aspects of his person and his power through the beauty and the complexity and the precision of the universe has no problem speaking through human authors in such a way that 
He preserves their own temperaments, their own personalities, their own vocabulary, incorporating their own backgrounds and their own experiences, yet they nevertheless write exactly what God desires them to write. Do you believe that? The human writers, some 40 of them over a period of 1,400 years, are but instruments in the Holy Spirit's hand who record what God wants us to have from him. That's what Peter's talking about. And this is why Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from where? From God himself, from the mouth of God. Every word of scripture comes out of the mouth of God. This book is alive, Peter declares, because it has God's breath on every page. And that can be said of no other book. And Jesus affirms this in John chapter 6, verse 63, saying, The words that I have spoken, the words that I have breathed out to you are spirit, and they are what? They're life. They're life. They're living. Now, because our Bible is in fact God-authored, breathed out by him and only by him, there are several other truths that you see there on your note page that, that kind of flow out of this, this initial kernel of truth, giving us absolute unshakable confidence in our Bibles as the source for what we're going to believe and how we're going to live. And leading off this list of additional truths is the inerrancy of God's word. Do you believe God's word is inerrant today, brother, sister, that it has no errors? you believe that? Because the Bible is God-breathed, it is therefore without error. It's, it's God's words. It's holy perfect he cannot lie he cannot misrepresent god is truth and every word that god speaks is true and it is error free titus chapter 1 verse 2 says god never what he never lies not even once ever are there some things god can't do yeah there's some things he can't do he can't sin he can't deny himself and he can't lie he can't lie Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, your word is truth. No lies. It's inerrant. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. Here at IBC, we uphold the inerrancy of the word because the author is God. Agreed? Yeah. And when God breathed out his word, that automatically implies the infallibility of the word. All that is recorded in scripture must come to pass. Do you believe that? Yeah? Okay, great. A little more vigor here when I ask these questions, right? Okay. The words of our God cannot fail. Isaiah 40, verse 8. This is the passage that Peter quotes. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand for how long? Forever. Yeah. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Not even a comma is going to be overlooked, Jesus says. And in John chapter 10, verse 35, the scriptures cannot be broken. If God said it, it's either already happened or it's going to happen. Yep. Do you believe that? 
Yes. And then, because the word is God-breathed and therefore inerrant and infallible, it is also backed up by the authority of God himself. When the Bible speaks, God is talking. And when God speaks, he speaks with sovereign authority. Psalm 19 makes this point. The law of the Lord, the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord, sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. And the rules of the Lord are true. The Bible's not a book of suggestions, is it? It's not a book of, of options that you just go to and you pick what you like. No, this book is the law of the Lord. And it is binding upon every single person's conscience and life. The Bible is the very command of God to us. It's why Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Paul says, I'm not talking to you from my own authority. I've got none. I am giving to you the words of God, and they carry full authority. Yeah. Do you believe it? Yes. And because this book is God's book, that means it's immutable. Now, this simply means that God's word never changes. Do you believe that, Christian? That God's word never changes, ever? Never, ever. Amen. Thank you for clarifying that. it, It never changes because God never changes. The book is immutable because God is immutable. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like a shifting shadow. In Malachi 3.6, we hear God say, For I am the Lord, I do not change. And in Psalm 119, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures for how long? Forever, because it's an immutable word. Right will always be right, and wrong will always be wrong, because God's word is immutable. And the way of salvation will forever and always be by grace through faith in Jesus alone. That never changes, does it? Because God is immutable and his word is immutable. And with immutability comes the invincibility of the word. It is is a far more superior weapon in your hand, brother, sister, young person, than any weapon that will ever be invented by man. Do you believe you hold the most powerful weapon in the the universe in your hand when you hold a Bible in your hand? Do you believe that? Yes, you should believe that. Jeremiah 23, 29 says, Is not my word like a fire? It consumes, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock. And when the Holy Spirit tells us that we've been supplied with everything we need to do battle in the spiritual realm, here's how it says it. In Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And with that, you do battle. It's an invincible sword. Our enemy trembles every time we take this sword into our hands and hide it in our hearts because it's powerful. It's penetrating. It's an invincible weapon because it's God's word breathed out. And then, because God has breathed out his word, that carries with it a finality, church. And that is to say that we're not waiting to get more from God, some new revelation. Are we waiting for something, some new revelation from him? 
I, I didn't hear that. No, that's right. He has spoken in his word, and with that comes a stamp of completion. We're not waiting for more. Jude, chapter, Jude verse 3 says, We have the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Do you believe it? Absolutely. Revelation twenty two eighteen. Jesus says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. The church sadly has not always remembered this truth. When anyone adds to the scriptures, they actually subtract from the scriptures. Do you believe that? And that's especially true of the gospel, is it not? Peter calls it the good news in verse 25. No one can ever add anything to Jesus and his saving work without taking away from Jesus' work. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. It has a finality because it is God-breathed, this book. And with that, our time is nearly gone, but return once again to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and let's affirm with Paul that the word of God will always be enough for us as we wrap things up. All scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable. It's profitable. It's enough. It's sufficient for teaching us what's right, Profitable for reproof, that's teaching us what's not right. Profitable for correction, telling us how to get it right when we've gotten it wrong, right? And profitable for training in righteousness, showing us how to stay on the right way. That the man or woman or young person of God may be, what's the word? Complete. Equipped for every good work. The word of God is enough for you today, brother, sister, and Jesus. Do you believe it? Isaiah 55:11. This is the Old Testament's counterpart to what Paul writes. God himself says, "My word which goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it." God's never up in heaven wringing his hands saying, "Boy, I wish I'd have said that differently." Or I sure wish I hadn't forgotten to say that. No, no, my word which goes out from my mouth will accomplish everything that I desire. Do you believe that? Yeah, Yeah. my word is enough. God says for you, it's enough. It can be rightly said, church family, that the word, the word of God is the most powerful object we were ever going to hold in our hands. And does not Peter affirm that in verse 23? For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding or enduring word of God. There is so much power in this book that when its truth is planted in the soil of a sinful human heart that has been prepared by the Holy Spirit of God, and then God by his sovereign grace causes that seed to germinate through faith in Jesus' cross and in his resurrection, it produces imperishable eternal life. This book alone holds the truth that transforms a person's life for eternity. Do you believe it? Yeah. Yeah. The church has always been its strongest when it takes its stand on the word of God like this. 
It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's authoritative. It's immutable. It's invincible. And it is final. That has always been the high ground of the church in any era where the church has made a difference in its culture. And this is why Idlewild Bible Church must always be Idlewild Church. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I thank you. I thank you for our time together in your word, your God-breathed word. Oh, we so desire to, to understand your word rightly and, and use it correctly and, and run to it as our high tower and our, our sword and our shield. And, oh, Heavenly Father, may you make us mighty as a people in your word here at the Bible Church. May we confess your word. May we preach your word. May we live your word. May we share your word, sing your word, counsel, correct, encourage your, through your word. And, and may we follow your word. May we be a people who follow your word, letting it be the light to our feet and the sword at our side. Thank you that you have entrusted to us, pilgrims, strangers, and exiles in this world, the treasure of your written word. For in it, we have the truth of Jesus that we get to share with other people as well. How we thank you for your word. How we thank you for Idlewild Bible Church. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Let's stand.